0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Live Through That, the podcast where I talk to influential musicians from the 80s, 90s, and beyond. I'm Mike Kipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in my books, Live Through That and 80s Redux, as well as artists whom I love and respect. This week's guest is singer, songwriter, poet, artist, and writer Deborah Ayell from the early 80s band Romeo Void. Deborah started the band well at the San Francisco Art Institute and quickly became an item in the local music scene. You know them from their iconic hits, A Girl in Trouble is a Temporary Thing and Never Say Never. Deborah was a true groundbreaker in the music world and continues to break new ground with her art these days. Today she tells us about the time she ran away from home when she was 13 years old.
1: Well, I started junior high in an awkward position. Some racial discrimination had begun happening with my social group in sixth grade. So this would be seventh grade in the olden days when we had junior high. And that was... Difficult enough, I think, for me to process because you know the kids that I had hung out with started acting different. I was confronted at a baseball game, Well, what are you anyway? Meaning, what's my ethnicity? and I said, Very proudly, I'm American Indian. And they said back to me, I wouldn't be proud. And then another incident happened, which is one of my longtime friends I'd probably known since you know third grade you know hung out with had a big party at the end of the year at her house with all of our friends and I didn't get invited so it was 1967 and over the summer I had read about the hippies and hate ashbury and the whole uh, social movement going on with the alternative lifestyles and Um, lack of conformity and thought, word and deed and fashion and everything. And I was very exhilarated by that. I started making my own granola and steaming vegetables and things like that, Uh, doing my own tie dye and making candles in the sand with driftwood and things like that. So I was already like 100% kind of bought into kind of the hippie thing. That's what it was termed anyway. To me, it was always just very alternative. And um, I, when I went back to school, one of the first things I did was I showed up at school with an Indian headband on my head, you know, sideways, because kids wear headbands all the time, but not across your forehead. And I got kicked out of school for that like sent home for the day and I was a kid who was an AB student I was kind of one of the smart kids and this was a shock to me and kind of just another blow at how people saw me different and now things were different now that I was in junior high and I was very unhappy about that um my mother instilled in me lots of uh, values for independent thought she was a veterinarian who graduated second in her i mean not second in her class but she was in a class of 102 she was one of the only two women who graduated with a veterinarian uh, certificate or degree and so she was a progressive, a free thinker. I was reading Herman Hess and Animal House that were her books. And then I just would read what she was reading. And she liked poetry. She took us to see Care. She took us to see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when it was in a black box theater in San Francisco. And so She was on my side, but she was a single mom raising four kids. So there was nothing that she was capable of doing to react to the school doing that, except accept it like I had to. And then um, another incident that happened at school, you know, and this was all in the first few weeks of school was I had written the words to get together, you know, come on people now, smile on your brother. And uh, I'd written those lyrics on my spelling book, which was a book you had to buy at the beginning of the year. It was like a workbook. And I got kicked out of school for that. Like not just told you're gonna have to buy a new book or anything, but just like literally sent home, sent out of class, discipline incident. And so for both of these incidents, my mom's at work being a veterinarian, and she sends over one of the guys who work in the kennels to come and pick me up and take me home. And so I think I felt very unsupported. And like, this is your cross to bear now. This is what life is going to be like. And one Sunday night... um, my whole family had gathered in the living room. I'm gonna start crying. So if my voice starts cracking a little bit, just like no that this really was a pivotal thing in my life. Um, my whole family had gathered in the living room to watch, you know, and I looked at them from outside. There was a window that faced the living room from the room I was in the bedroom. And I could see them all sitting there. I felt completely isolated by that. And I decided I was going to run away to San Francisco. This was at on Sunday night. So I had a lot of uh, courage and gumption and know-how you know, as a 13-year-old. Um, I had made that summer working for my mom at her veterinary hospital. I'd made like I don't know, over $100, which was a lot of money. And, you know, when I was uh, in 1967, that was a pretty big amount of money, for, especially for a 13-year-old kid. And I had been saving him to buy some cowboy boots because we had horses. And I, of course, wanted a nice pair of cowboy boots <laughs> for my hard-earned money. And I thought, I'm going to fly to San Francisco. And I called the airline. I got a reservation. I called a cab. Had it meet me a half a block away at the corner, left the house during the Smothers Brothers, went out to the airport with no luggage. I had like my uh, pea coat on over a pair of cutoffs and a surfer shirt. Um, It's funny we remember what we're wearing. (laughs) And um, no one thought a thing of it when I was in line at the ticket thing. They kind of looked at me like no luggage. And I said, my family left earlier like they had my luggage so they left on the plane and I ran away from Fresno California to San Francisco and I got into the airport and I'm like what do I do now and it was by that time it was like 10 o'clock at night probably because I don't know what time the mother's brothers came on but I think it's like around seven all this happened pretty quickly and uh I just started wandering around the airport and I noticed this group of hippie kids, you know, long haired couple of girls, couple of guys. Um, one was like mixed race, African-American, real kind of sly in the family stone, fashion vibe. So I started following them around and they were just wandering around the airport. So of course we noticed each other and I went up to him and I said, are you guys perhaps going into San Francisco? Because I pretty much sussed out that, you know, San Francisco airport was not in San Francisco and it really isn't. And uh, plus I didn't know where I was going to go when I got there anyway. And they were like, oh yeah, you can come with us. And it turns out what they were doing is their friend, the Sly and the Family Stone fashion guy, was going to fly back to Chicago after spending the summer in San Francisco to rejoin his family and, quote, unquote, kind of go straight again, you know. And he wasn't able to get on the plane. He just couldn't go, you know. So my watching him walk around was him just basically chickening out on leaving San Francisco. So we all piled into this Volkswagen bug. And so I made like five people in the bug, and uh, they're like, well, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I just ran away <laughs> and I couldn't have met people who were more sympathetic to my situation, <laughs> honestly. And they didn't quite know what to do with me, um, but they were uh, driving around Haight-Ashbury a little bit. They went to one of their friend's houses to see if maybe I could stay there and uh, it was funny because they went running up the stairs you know this old victorian and the guy who answers the doors naked you know and i can see him and i'm like oh my god where am i <laughs> it's a long way from fresno and uh i guess you know they weren't interested in taking a 13 year old runaway in that night and by this time it's probably midnight so they're like oh we know where you can go we'll take you to the switchboard which was a community service and um, I don't know if they had like a radio station involved with the switchboard but it was definitely one of those places where you could call to get help and stuff like that and it was just this little office in like a front room of a flat with a bathroom attached and that's where people answered the calls for you know probably drug overdoses or depression or suicide attempts who knows you know what all the people were calling about to the switchboard and and they dropped me off there and the people at the switchboard were kind of like what's going on and uh, they're like well you know what it's really late at night now just sleep on this they had like a daybed uh situation you know just like covered with plaid upholstery material you know and they're just like lay down there and sleep and we'll figure it out in the morning and they welcomed me to Haight-Ashbury. And then the next morning, I went over to a house in a big old Victorian called Huckleberries for Runaways. And I stayed there a few days before my family and I were reunited. Um, basically, the Huckleberries found out that they were looking for me and the police were looking for me. <laughs> you know, so I went back to Fresno. But that was... A really crucial part of my life and my decision and me having to step up for myself and be courageous and you know acknowledge my situation and want to change it.
0: After her mother found her and brought her back home to Fresno, things really weren't any better at school for Deborah. I
1: was very much ostracized um, in school. I had uh, a boy, like, you know, within an hour of me arriving at school tell me, um, well, I'm surprised to see you here. We heard you were dead. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then once I'd done that, I was kind of notorious in a not necessarily good way and all the quote unquote kids that I used to hang out with my, you know, social group that was kind of like rejecting me anyway. I feel like for pretty much racial, you know, reasons, they made it really clear. I wasn't really one of them. And so my options were, they were like asking me, well, why don't you hang out with the Mexicans? <laughs> Which, you know, uh, maybe somebody who is Mexican, that would make sense. But you know, my mom was Anglo. My dad um, was Native American. He was out of the picture since I was two and a half years old. So I mean, even though I am Native American, I wasn't raised by him, and he wasn't in the picture, and there's there weren't there isn't a huge population of Native American kids in Fresno City schools anyway. So I remember trying to hang out with Mexicans and like not speaking Spanish and culturally not having that much in common, you know. But, like, it was somebody to hang out with. And then um, one of the girls that I hung out with, her brother gave her a bunch of second all. And she showed up at my house when my mom was there on second all, like, practically drooling. (laughs) So it was like a whole new world. And so I quit high school when I was 16 the minute i beca- it was legal for me to do so
0: Deborah eventually went back to school and earned a master's in education and taught art for many years in Southern California. Today, she's still making music and art as well as working on a memoir of her life that will hopefully see the light of day in 2024. She's also keeping busy doing voiceovers for a show called Spirit Rangers, among others. You can also see her in the Epic's documentary series, Women Who Rock. And going back to our roots on the show, Deborah gives us some recommendations of things that have recently inspired her.
1: So I have five things that have been a really positive influence on me and that I hold close to my heart. Um, one of them is the movie Whale Rider. It came out in uh, 2002. It was written and directed by Nikki Caro, um, based on a novel called The Whale Rider by Witte Imihera. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. I believe it's a Maori name. Um, it's just an amazing tale and a beautiful film, beautifully acted, great characters, uh, a lot of sort of very essential uh, lessons. This um, prepubescent, going into pubescent girl has to um, overcome and confront as she's growing older and the uh, sex roles are Uh, defined in her culture at that time and how she ends up kind of upending that and yet really being a super positive influence on her community. (laughs) So it's really a fantastic film. Whale Rider, 2002, um, written and directed by Nikki Caro. The other, another thing that always I loved was Billie Holiday, the singing of Billie Holiday. And um, in particular, the song God Bless the Child, which she wrote in 1939. I really just like the whole idea of money, you've got lots of friends, right? The lyrics are uh, very straightforward. But when it's gone and spending ends, they don't come around no more, you know? It's a great song. God Bless the Child. An album that I love, and I actually have owned it on cassette, 8-track, and now as an album, (laughs) is Laura Nero's Christmas and the Beads of Sweat. She's put out an amazing amount of songs over her lifetime, covered by all kinds of artists, including Barbra Streisand and The Fifth Dimension Hits. But she writes very personal music as well. And that particular album is just powerful. And I can listen to it from start to finish. I'm still in love with it after all these years. I am I got it when it came out. I'm actually not sure when that was in the 70s. Um, and last but not least, I have written, I, excuse me, I have read a lot of novels in my life and um, short stories as well. Um, Tilly Olson, I'm thinking, is one short story writer I really like. But my favorite novel writer really at this point I can say is probably Louise Erdrich, who is uh, half Native American and half uh, German-Dutch-English You know, that kind of thing, mostly German, I think. And she's from the Midwest. We were born in the same year. And I actually got to read poetry ahead of one of her readings in San Francisco, probably about 25 or 30 years ago. (laughs) So I got to meet her at that point. And just everything she puts out, it has really high quality and engaging. And I don't know, I can just really relate to her observations and insights about behavior and culture and time and what we inherit, you know, from our um, ancestors, whether they're German butchers or Native American uh, grandmothers.
0: Thank you, Deborah, for telling your story and a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artists and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. In addition, my earlier book, 80s Rear Ducks, is available wherever you buy your books and you can see more about Deborah in that book. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening.
2: It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.